Hi guys, um, welcome to Glitching the Code. This is episode six, I believe, and I'm here with author David Sedgwick, and he is the author of an incredible book. It's called BBC Brainwashing Britain. Now, from a filmmaker's point of view, and I have an honours degree in film and TV production, and I don't say that other than to, to explain why this was such an important book for me. Coming out of university, I went to the big BBC, the land, the Oz, thinking that I would be able to be a creative person and I quite quickly realised that's not the way it works and that's not just to say the BBC that's um, one of the more um, obvious places to go but this happens in every line of business every place you go has a soft cult mentality and that term that David's coined soft cult really rang a bell with me so David it's great to, great to speak to you um, can you explain a little bit about how you come to write this book about BBC, BBC Brainwashing Britain, and and what it means to you um, and your background? Right, uh, yeah. Hi, Richard. Thanks. Um, well, the the book um, is the result of, I would say, about four or five years um, research, um, not full-time research, but four or five years of watching television the way most people do, um, watching BBC content and starting to realise that something's happening in that content and something has changed and something is changing within what we call the state broadcaster. Um, it's actually been happening much longer than that, but I think certainly people like myself that study the media, we've been aware of what the BBC is, what it's supposed to be, what it actually does in reality, and there's a, there's a, some very um, worrying aspects of what the BBC does, um, the position it holds in the public domain, public discourse, and those worries have been crystallising, I think, for certain people, especially uh, since Brexit coverage is the one that everybody points to quite rightly. But that, for me, is the tip of a very large iceberg. I mean, you, you only have to look at its involvement with the Trump presidency. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite as wicked. Um, uh, uh, the coverage has been absolutely disgraceful. Um, I think for fair-minded people, I think if you're of a certain political persuasion, you sit there and you think, wow, this is great. This is exactly, you know, if you're a metropolitan liberal sitting there in London, it reflects your prejudices back to you. However, the BBC's remit is, is far, far greater, or is supposed to be greater than just appealing to metropolitan liberals sitting in Islington and Camden. It's supposed to be a national broadcaster, and the real issue that people like myself have, it is completely failing in that duty to represent the different, the very wide political and social spectrum that we have in the United Kingdom. I don't know, uh, the further north you get from London, I would imagine that the BBC seems completely um, a, an alien organization to you it just doesn't reflect the experience and the the desire and the social and political and the cultural experiences of people away from a certain very stratified group of people we could call them i don't know the elite the metropolitan the establishment you could call all those sort of names but it's true that i think that it's becoming disjointed from the people it's supposed to um represent i mean we pay people pay uh, for the BBC and it has a very special and it has a very privileged place in our society and it has responsibilities and just to summarise quickly I think and I'm not the only person that is failing very very grossly in those responsibilities so writing the book was my way of trying to articulate what I think is going wrong um, and I think that's the key that is going wrong. 
I think what you've hit on there is incredibly important in many, many ways. And, um, and one of the things you point out in your book is the fact that they have an obligation as a, as a national broadcaster. They get funding from the, uh, through the Royal Charter to actually be, um, not have a political opinion. Now, I don't think they have any other opinion, any other opinions other than a political opinion. Um, and for them to get the money from us, which is nearly, is it nearly six billion a year that they get from us, from a, from the license pay fee to to be a impartial broadcaster, they're doing the opposite. But they can't come out and say that because they wouldn't be able to get the funding. Now this is, I don't think many people understand this that when you go and watch Question Time, when you go and watch Have I Got News for You, and these programs, they should not be able to have the leanings that they have and the propaganda they have that should not be happening yeah well that's that's um that's supposed to be true <laughs> uh, there is a document like you say called the royal charter and the fact that they can charge 155 pounds per year for the license fee is predicated solely on being what they call impartial uh, but then when you realise this word impartial is not as clear-cut as you and I might think it is. Mm. I mean, we think impartiality means to be fair and to treat everybody, every subject, every person with fairness and objectivity. Well, we know that's not true. I mean, like I I've, I think I just mentioned, the do if look at Donald Trump, look at the coverage of Donald Trump, the American presidency. I mean, I don't think you will see a single story from the BBC where you could say is he even vaguely positive. Um or even truthful about the, the presidency. I mean, you, you won't hear at all about the fact that he's created six, five, six million jobs since he's been there. You've got record low in, unemployment in the African-American community. You won't hear any of that. What you'll hear is Trump's a pussy grabber. Pussy <laughs> yeah. grabber, Trump grabber. You know, I mean, that's from a national broadcaster. Now, the, the thing is, Richard, that yes, you can imagine, okay, that coverage, if they're going to call him a pussy grabber or a you know maniac, a, a demagogue, if that's the Guardian or the Independent, fine. You know, they're left wing. They're very, in my opinion, the very hard left wing and they hate Trump. So, OK, that's fair enough. But I don't have to go to my news agents and buy the Guardian or the Independent. Yep. Um, the BBC should not have an editorial line that is very closely aligned to those hard left wing newspapers like the Independent or the Guardian. In fact, I would argue that sometimes the BBC editorial line is, is more like the sort of Marxist um, Vox Salon, those really far left American publications. I mean, you, you could put BBC headlines against Vox and Salon and you wouldn't know which was which. Mm. So the problem is that it's not representing that that demographic that would buy the Guardian or the Independent is actually quite small. It's a minority that actually read and even believe what they read, what they see in the Guardian and the Independent. I would not believe a word that I read in the Guardian and the Independent. So the BBC has a duty not to follow the line of the Guardian, even if that reflects its own political bias, which most of those people in the BBC are, as we know, pro-European, liberal, probably left-wing, um, and that's fine. But you have to remember, this is not your own personal political plaything. You are you have a royal charter there. You're supposed to represent, yes, you hate UKIP voters. You, you don't particularly like northern working class people, but I'm afraid they exist and they're here and they're paying towards your huge salaries and bonuses and all the rest of it that you enjoy down there in your metropolitan bubble. So as much as you admire Salon and Vox and the New York Times, 
I'm afraid you can't follow their editorial line. You're supposed to be impartial. You're supposed to be in the middle. In fact, you might even have to have a look at Breitbart occasionally, as much as that would terrify BBC types um, or RT or Fox. You know, the, the antipathy of the BBC towards anything right of Stalin in the media is, is visceral and it's clear. And yet I would argue that the majority of great British population are socially conservative and slightly to the right of centre. So what they're doing, they're actually using an editorial line, which is a minority opinion. And they shouldn't be doing that. It's totally wrong. If they want to do that, they should go like The Guardian and like The Independent and say, you have a choice then. If you want to subscribe to our BBC, Guardian, Independent, New York Times worldview, then that's up to you. You don't have to. But we're in a position, Richard, and the Royal Charter compels everybody in this in the United Kingdom, if you want to watch any television, live or recorded, don't forget that you have to subscribe to the BBC. You don't have a choice of doing that. So that's the big problem. You know, and sure, if you want a political line, if you want to be an LGBT, pro-Islamic, left-wing mouthpiece, then fine, go and do it. But don't sit there and pretend that you're impartial. Yes. <laughs> Don't pretend you treat a UKIP voter in the same way that you treat a liberal Democrat, pro-European. Don't pretend that. Be honest and just say it. But yeah. the, as you rightly said, if the moment they actually admit to that, then they have no right to a royal charter and they lose £4 billion immediately. So they will never, ever sit there and say, we are biased. In fact, uh, the one person who did do this was that James O'Brien from LBC, who, who used to have a slop on Newsnight. And what I thought was really funny about that is that um, he, he's a very, I'd say, a very centrist, metropolitan, liberal left winger. And he's allowed to do that on LBC because LBC is a private radio show. We don't have to pay for it. So that's fine. But when he was on Newsnight, because he was so anti-Brexit and anti-Trump, what the, they got rid of him from Newsnight. The mistake he made was to actually admit that he was, was anti-Brexit and anti-Trump. The BBC said, oh, my God, he's actually gone and admitted it. We have to get rid of him. So they're quite happy for you to be anti-Brexit, anti-Trump, as long as you don't commit the sin of admitting it. James O'Brien actually admitted it, which was good, which was full power to him. But they said, oh, my God, he's admitted it. We've got to get rid of him. You don't admit it, James. You do it, but you don't admit it. So he lost his Newsnight slot because of yeah. that. So. And uh, th that brings me on to the next bit, which I know a few people have obviously been, gone to the BBC myself only for a short period of time. There's some really lovely people there, of course, there is, especially on a, on a, on a, on a um, local level, of course. And this brings us to the soft cult term that you've come with. These, they can't, the people working there, how, how lovely they are, and they are well-intentioned. They're in a bubble of thought, but they can, even if they have an alternative thought, or alternative the wrong thing, as, not, as George Orwell called it, they can't say it. They'll lose their job, as you just explained then. So how does that function in a in a in a um broadcaster you've got all these people there that must be miserable <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, well yes richard i think what what i think richard what i think it is i mean if you obviously i draw some parallels between i draw a lot of parallels between 1984 and mm. the bbc not not only because george orwell based effectively his ministry of truth on, on his experience at the BBC, which is pretty scary in itself, if you think about it. And that was in the 1940s, don't forget. Orwell felt that um, the big brother atmosphere, the, the conformity, he felt that very strongly back in, he was there for what, four or three or four years in the early 1940s. He felt that in the early 1940s. Heaven knows 
what it must be like to work in the BBC these days. If you walk in there, um, and I think in 1984, George Elwell says that a party, he calls it the party, of course. And he says, a party member, you don't even need to tell them. You do not need to tell them anything how they should think. You don't need to tell them their views. They know already. It's the moment you walk in there, you know what you have to think. You know you have to hate Donald Trump with a passion. You have to hate him. You have to think that Brexit voters are knuckle-dragging little Englanders. And you can imagine the sort of little jokes between them about these terrible Brexit voters. You know, I can just, I mean, W1A sent up the BBC, but I, I don't think it, they, they were trying obviously to deflect the criticism away from themselves there with that W1A sitcom uh, set in the BBC. Right. But I don't think it even got halfway close to being, you know, a real satire. Um, you can just imagine those 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 ingrained attitudes, the sort of the, the raised eyebrows when they're talking about a, a Brexit vote. Oh, my God. Um, those attitudes, uh, you know, are are pervasive. They are implicit and they're also explicit. And like you said, if you don't conform to those very stringent, remember we're talking about very stringent political ideas here, you know. These, these are not people that just have a, you know, a little dog in a little fight. These are stringent political activists. And arguably, I would say that this is a political party much more strident than the Labour Party, much more strident than the Conservatives or UKIP. This is a political party. This is a strident political party. I mean, political parties in real politics, you have to compromise and discuss. There's no compromise and discussion in BBC politics. They are right and you are wrong. Yeah. And when you join that organisation, you must feel overwhelmed by this this political and cultural atmosphere in there because you know you have to conform. And if you don't conform, your career is going nowhere. Mm. And that's a pretty terrifying prospect for something that's supposed to be an impartial national broadcaster. It is. And I was there only a week ago, a week ago yesterday, to promote a documentary that had just come out about social media, um, effect on young people's mental health, how it's a conditioning tool, which BBC is a conditioning tool. All of these channels, all of these major media outlets are conditioning tools first, then they become addictive, um, which is something that's, that we discussed in the film. But my point was that I was at the BBC and we were doing an interview with a local interview, and the guy that was interviewing me, who I know very well and is a lovely, lovely man, when we finished the interview, he kind of punched the air because we got to discuss something and debate something without having to have having to say what we thought. I was not saying what they what I would had to say if I was employed because I'm a self-employed person. So I went in there and just said what I thought, and he got to discuss it better. And I felt like he felt I don't know I could be wrong, but it seemed like he really enjoyed it because he got to say or at least have mm. someone say in his presence what he might have had an opinion about. And that is a terrible thing for someone. Maybe I think he must have worked there twenty odd years. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's true, but it felt that way. Um, so this—that's the whole persuasive and over pervasive feeling there. Now, what's happening is you're getting a lot of young people that are coming out of university, going straight into there, getting their BBC badge, and this—and again, this could be BBC, NBC, ABC, going in there, all wide-eyed, vulnerable. And then it's almost like going into what you term a soft cult. You go, okay, now, oh, I'm thinking this way. Do I really understand it? And before you know it, you're having to think that way because you're you're reliant on that wage, and not just a little bit of a wage. You can't. It's not as the stacking shelves. These are money. This is money that Ooh. is good money. So, and you've got the thing you can go home and tell your parents. I work at the BBC, 
which sounds great. Yes. Um, well, like you said, the, the, the carrot and the stick there is pretty big. Um, huge salaries. I mean, as far as the media is concerned, I mean, the, the average pay for a, a journalist is, is, is not particularly great. I mean, you're talking 20 to 24,000 pounds, an average journalist, journalist, local journalist. They're talking up to about 10 times more than that. Um, plus, as you said, the, the privilege that comes to working for an international broadcaster like the BBC, the, the, these are these these are rewards. These are palpable rewards for people. And you've got to think very hard, long and hard if you're going to reject that, because that's the pinnacle. I mean, look at the amount of um, trainees that are scrambling to get places at the BBC every year. The, the competition is intense. Mm. Um how they get those employees um, is another matter altogether because what they're looking for are what I call in the book right thinkers. Yeah. They're looking for people of a particular persuasion, political persuasion. And that has a very detrimental effect, I think, on the BBC itself because one thing they, they talk about a lot, as you know, is one of their buzzwords is diversity. Well, you know, di diversity is a, tr a tricky topic. I mean, you, you might have different skin colours, Fine, but if you all think exactly the same thoughts, I would argue that is superficial diversity at the very best. Um, so, and I think what happens is that this cascade, it's a sort of, if you think of it, it's, it's a sort of cascading effect where it's a top-down, like in most huge bureaucracies, it's a very top-down environment. As most of the culture, the BBC culture is set at the very, very top and it filters all the way down to the very bottom. And, and like you said, Nat, when a new trainee comes into the BBC, that culture filters down. It's a very, very strong culture in the BBC of what you're supposed to say, think, believe, and act, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and you can imagine the pressure for a young trainee or an intern who arrives at the BBC. But don't forget, they've already been selected because they are people like us. They think the same as us, and they're very likely to hold our political opinion. So that's half the battle. But then they arrive in the BBC, and I think the pressure... For them to conform to BBC beliefs, these shibboleths that they that they hold there, very firm opinions that never change. You know, Putin is a monster. We've got to get rid of Assad. Uh, Israel, you know, is the constant um, bane of the poor Palestinians. These these views never change. Like I said, they're like shibboleths. They 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 just remain in place. It's dogma, and that dogma is very strong. It's very pervasive, and those trainees and like you were mentioning before local local journalists at where i'm bbc northwest and bbc cambridge and all those they instinctively know what is required of them now that's why i call it a soft cult richard because um what cults do cults and sects exert this pressure on their members and anyone who steps outside this this stratified opinion or belief system will be punished or vilified and in the case of the BBC, they would lose that huge salary, the perks and that kudos that comes at working with the BBC. And that's how they are controlled. And that's essentially how cults control their members on reward and punishment system. So I think it is a soft cult. And I think in the book, I, I make that argument. And the other thing, Richard, as well, uh, just, just to finish that, um, members of soft cults, uh, paradoxically, are often what we call educated people. So you might think that clever people, allegedly clever people, would think, wait a minute, I'm in a cult here. I can't express myself. Is that right? I'm, not, I'm only allowed to have certain opinions. 
Now, if I'm a clever person, then I might find that intolerable. And I might say to myself, I'm sorry, as I think you've you hinted, you might have made this decision on other people. And you might think to yourself, I'm sorry, I can't go along with this. I'm mm. sorry. If I'm an intelligent person, I'm certainly not going to have people from above telling me what I think and what is correct and what is wrong. Um, so that's a paradox there. They, they call themselves educated people. And yet, as, we, as research shows, and I think research shows this, that the majority of people who join any kind of cult are actually educated people, which is yep. quite paradoxical. It is. And again, that's a bit of propaganda put out there to say that the people that they've, that join these cults are not, again, um, educated people. And, and even that term is is wildly misleading. Um, look, I, at the, uh, Richard, look at the um, look at the FBPE, this uh, EU pro EU movement on social media, FBPE. OK, I think it means follow, follow back pro pro-europe or something really okay. Most of them are, a lot of them are academics media people yeah. um students um people who consider themselves educated and yet you know they're in, they're actually in a cult <laughs> that, that operates like a cult yeah and yet and then same with the bbc and yet somehow you have to convince yourself somehow and i i, I think that Orwell was right when he said it's double think it is it's like yeah. i'm in a cult but i can ignore it because I'm so convinced that we are so right, and that's what every cult in history has believed. We are so convinced we're so right. Well, there's no problem in being in the cult then. If we're so right, and our cult is is the word, then hey, what's the problem in being in a cult? So it's, it's double think, um, a double think related to cognitive dissonance. You know deep down that this is bollocks, but you'll yeah. go along, you'll convince yourself as long as you possibly can. It isn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. You, you, you know, these BBC correspondents who, they, they nowadays they're getting a lot of flack on Twitter and social media because for the first time ever you can actually contact some of these people direct, and you can challenge them, which they absolutely hate. Mm. I mean, John Sopple of the BBC, who who I criticise in my book, has I think muted me on Twitter purely because I point out the bias. Uh, I know he's. He's muted me because I can see the way that Twitter interacts, and I try and address it, and I don't get his address. Oh, okay. I think, yeah, I think that means that you're muted. I'm not sure that's definite. Um, but they they don't they, they they don't want any of this criticism. They they can't stand any kind of criticism because that belief in them can't be pierced at all. Because the moment you pierce it, they would have to then do something rather counterintuitive, which is to look at their own cells and look at how they operate. Now. Until the age of the internet, they were able to get away with that, Richard. No one could ever re- How would you criticize the BBC? How could they ever get instantaneous feedback? They couldn't get instantaneous feedback. Whatever they said went. And I think in their minds, it's still 1950. And I think in their minds, it's like, we produce the news. You consume it. You listen to it. We tell you what to think. And that's the end of the story, buddy. But now it's not because people are coming onto them and calling them out. And I do it all the time. I do it for fun. Yeah, I do it for fun. I just like to point out the hypocrisy. And I like to see the reaction, the kind of childish reaction. How dare you? I work for the BBC. How dare you? Who are you? You're nothing. You're nobody. How dare you tell me I've done some, I've been hypocritical. My bias is clear. How dare you do that? Yeah. Um, and that, that's one of the great things, of course, about the social, you know, I know you're, you're right. You're doing something about social media at the moment. And maybe some of the drawbacks, but I think one of the positives is that you can actually instantly connect some of these people and call them out if you can get through the millions of messages, of course, that clog up message and you know social media. That's we don't know whether we can actually get through or not. We think we can. I mean, you got poor old 
President Trump has about 10,000 trolls. Every time he sends out a tweet, there's 10,000 professional trolls on all instantly reacting to him, probably all thinking they see his they see his their, their hate, but I don't think he does. I don't think he doesn't bother about them. Of course, but, he wouldn't. That's not very true entirely. Um, but yeah, what you're saying there is, um, effect, effectively, I think you can make a very strong argument that, that the BBC behaves like a sect or a religious cult. I think that, that's very clear to me. Yeah, I, I would agree, and I would agree on many, many of the things I've worked I've used to be a youth worker, and it happened in the youth work sector as well. The wrong think people don't stay around. You can't be someone of your own opinion in in most sectors or you will get ostracized and then you'll have to be self-employed and scrape by but the great thing is you can actually get by with very little which which is mm. we're told we can't but you actually can now one of the things that i really wanted to go on is that so from there that soft cult mentality and you just said you consume their what their output now imagine the output anyone listening that comes from a place like that not just the bbc again I have some very nice people that I know at the BBC, and it's not just that. My point is that the output of that soft cult mentality, what do you think is going out into the general public, that we're paying for our own indoctrination? And a clear case of that right now is the Tony Robinson thing that happened yesterday um, about him being, and he was clearly clearly filmed being abused by police and his children hysterically crying. I pointed this out this morning. And I got loads of backlash saying, you support his politics. I was like, no, I don't support children getting abused. But the power of the BBC to make out that people like Brexit is bad, Tommy Robinson is bad. I'm not sure. I don't agree with all of his stuff. But the power of that they have over people's minds is incredible. Yeah. And then people are in this stage, this Twitter age, where they can only think in 256 characters, young people now, so they don't have the concentration span to go and do research that's beyond the first page of Google, or read mm. a research paper, or do, like you just said, that took you four to five years to write this book. Now, books are getting written in three months, and they're on Kindle. I mean, how <laughs> much, how much research can you do in that amount of time? Things are getting devalued and journalism especially is getting is, is almost dead in in the war as far as i'm concerned in in many ways well real real journalism is real journal pro, real journalism probably is is in crisis i think there's a crisis that, that that's quite new in the, and you're right i think what people exist now is in shortcuts people want want shortcuts and, and sound bites and um, when you mention the, the the tommy robinson case from yesterday I think we all saw that that was police harassment, and mm. that's pretty clear, I think, to everybody. But my, my, I've not seen how the BBC and the mainstream media are covering it, because we can talk about the BBC and the MSM together. They are the same. I mean, we happen to be talking about the BBC, but I could write a book about Sky. I could write a book about ITV, Channel 4, just as bad, if not worse, than the BBC. Now, I suspect that they are giving very scant coverage to Tommy, the Tommy yeah. Robinson case, and that's purely because, clearly... He was in the right and the system has failed and the system has tried to demonize him and justice has failed. And they don't want to then bring this topic up now because unfortunately what's happened is they, they can only bring up a topic when Tommy Robinson is, is on the defensive. That's when they like to talk about Tommy Robinson. They will never give you a story when Tommy Robinson is clearly in the right yeah. and, and, and the system has been proven to be what he says. He says he's an enemy of the state. He says the state are plotting to destroy his life 
Well, yesterday's decision seems to support that pretty strongly, I would suggest, and therefore mainstream media coverage today will be pretty scant. In fact, I, I read something on The Independent, just a few lines about it. None of the nuances, none of the details about how he'd been specifically targeted in a pub with his children, nothing about that, just a few scant lines. Now, if Tommy Robinson said something about a mosque or, or the, the New Zealand and, and had been even slightly contentious, that would have been splashed all over their media. That's that's the environment we're in. We're in, you know, I call, in my book, I call, I don't use the word journalist. And I, I when I'm describing BBC, I call them activists. Yeah. And I do that on purpose because they are political activists. They are political activists masquerading as journalists. And you could even say it's an infiltration. Um, I would call it an infiltration of journalism. Traditional journalism has been infiltrated to such an extent now. I don't think there are any real journalists. In fact, real journalists are probably people like yourself, Richard, who are now being marginalised and being forced to become what we call citizen journalists. I think citizen journalists are out there, and they are the real journalists. They are people who are digging. They are people who are saying, OK, that's the government. That's the, the establishment narrative, the government narrative, the one that's usually the editorial line of the MSN, and they're saying, hold on a moment, we need to dig into this, we need to look at this, we need, we're not just going to accept what the establishment, what the UN says, what UNESCO says, what the BBC says, what the government says, we need to dig into these stories, where BBC, ITV Channel 4, they never do, they accept the line, and that becomes their truth, and anyone who challenges that truth, you know, is an extremist, and that's where we are at the moment. And that, that's pure 1984. And that's why I, I use 1984 a lot there, because if you challenge the, the wisdom of the party, and don't forget the party, the BBC, ITV, the party is effectively the rich and powerful. And the BBC and ITV and the mainstream media are, in fact, the tool, nothing more than a tool of rich and powerful corporate global interests. That, that's, that's the thing that everybody must realise that, and we've seen it with Brexit, of course, you know, the, the political elite have been shown to represent corporate, global, financial, powerful interests, not the people. And I think that's been a shock for a lot of people. And I think the other shock is to realise that the media that you consume is part of that same establishment. Uh, but I think people are waking up. Yeah, I do. I think they're waking up, but it's almost like growing pains because the discussions that I've had lately, is they don't want to look at this. Now, this Tommy Robinson thing yesterday, regardless, and I tried to get people to split their understanding of whether they agree with his politics or not, bearing in mind that most of what you've learned comes through the mainstream media and you need to check it. Um, he, he was abused in that situation with his children. My big point was if it can happen to him and then he can get fined and he's filmed the evidence and you've seen it and you still think he, he's to blame, you are building yourself a gilded cage. This First they came for the Jews, then I didn't, and I wasn't one, so I did nothing. Look up yeah. that because this is what's happening. Now, I'm really passionate about this because I want to have children. Oh. And I don't want my children to put a tweet out in 20 years' time and get arrested. It's ridiculous. And this is what's happening. Freedom of speech is being killed. That is, he's not allowed to say what he thinks. He's allowed a political opinion. He wasn't even given a political opinion at that time. He was having a meal in, in a, like a happy horse with his kids. I mean, it's, mm. it's ludicrous. So if it can happen to him, it can happen to you. Now, my point was that that is that is a police state that is 1984 right in front of you you've seen all the evidence of that still you don't want to look at it now my point was really that is you next 
That's you yeah. next. And and please wake up because that's me next. And that's my children next. That's that's David next. That that's well, these people. Uh, it's us. And also, Richard, the, the, the other point about that is, of course, that had that been a right thinker, had it would never have happened anyway. But let's imagine that mm. that had been someone who the mainstream media and the BBC like and approve of. That would have been splashed all over the media today. The outrage yeah. that uh, let's imagine a celebrity who's pro-migration, you know, uh, anti-Brexit. Let's imagine that it would. Let's imagine it was Owen Jones, journalist who'd been out with children. I don't think he has children, but it might have been Owen Jones, and mm. Owen Jones had been hassled by the police and uh, effectively told to leave the city. That outrage, there would be fury, outrage, backlash, criticism. The headlines would be all over the MSM today, the BBC, Channel Four, and ITV. How outrageous the police! The bullies, the authoritarian police. How could they do this? Poor Owen Jones and poor Owen Jones' children. Tommy Robinson, crickets. Yeah. And that's where we are. Yeah, and that is where we are. And that's a scary, scary world. That is 1984. That's 100% a police state. This is where we are. Richard, that's sending out a message. If you've got the right opinions, the right political opinions, guess what? The police will be okay with you. If you have the wrong political opinions, guess what? The state can use the police to harass you. Into and, and, and your children and your family, they can make your life a misery. And that's a police state, that's an authoritarian state flexing its muscles, sending out a message to the citizens saying, if you have the wrong opinions, and don't forget the wrong opinions, Richard, these days are anti-globalization opinions, effectively. Mm. So if you're anti-globalist, if you believe in national borders, freedom of speech, I mean, true freedom of speech, uh, yeah. Not one that the media keep talking about. If you hold those opinions, guess what? The police, the government, the state, we're going to crack down on you. And this Tommy Robinson case is a, a litmus paper test for that. And I, I, I was dismayed yesterday that the judge in her case um, just caved in and went the wrong way. And I think that was that was a pretty terrifying moment where the police can actually do, like you said, it could be anybody next. I mean. The, the next stage to that is the police can walk into your house, my house, anybody's house. They can take us. They can take us away for questioning about our wrong think, whatever yeah. it is we've done wrong. Supposedly, we might have had a wrong thought. They can kick in your door and come in. That's the next stage. That brings me to. That reminds me of uh, a very uh, well. I think it was a film from the early, from the late nineties called Minority Report. And um, I don't know if you remember, it was a, it was a film with Tom Cruise in it, and yeah. basically. They were arresting them because they they were deemed they might future crimes future crimes and that's where we are and I know it sounds mental and I'm quite good friends with Gareth Ike who's David Ike's son and we talk about this stuff and David Ike whatever you think of him again he if you look back to his work he was saying this in the early nineties and he was a wrong thinker he worked at the BBC he could be sitting he could be sitting there at get sorry he could be sitting there at doing Gary Lineker's job right now. Right now yes. for two point five million, and everyone says he's got loads of money in his. He lives in a flat, in a high rise, in um, Isle of Wight, and and this is fact. I know David. I know Gareth Ike. I know that this is true, but they still people don't want to believe it. But it is true. Gareth Ike's got a leaky roof and he has to do three jobs because they've got no money. Um, people well, don't want to believe it. This guy was saying this a long time ago. So he was punished a long time ago. It was a very early version of a Tommy Robinson type and even momentum went after him very recently um and i had to i had a a pop-up a guy called clive lewis who's a local mp around here saying have you read his book because he was saying when he means 
Zionists, he means Jews. He's at the BBC as well, um, that Clive Lewis, by the way. That Clive Lewis, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've had a pop. I know I've I've met him a few times because he's in mm. Norwich. I don't know him. I don't know him at all. Um, but he's always been polite to me in person. Um, but he was going along the sharing the momentum's um, supposed demonstration at David Icke's event when there was six people there and they used mm. different photos from a different event. But there you go. That's mm. what journalism apparently about. And mm. um, and um, I said to him, "Have you read his books?" And he says, "No, I don't need. To, I um." I um I know more not not I know more than that. I said if you read the book, then I actually screenshot a bit from David Icke's one of his books says, Jew uh, Zionists not Jews. I do not mean Jew. He wrote a whole bloody chapter on it, and he's still he he said no he does mean Jews. It's like what? How do you win? It's mm. psych it's psychotic, mm. and it's mm. psychopathic. Mm. And these people are working at the BBC. They're putting yeah. this out. But that uh, I don't I'm, in the book I, I call a narrative that that's. These are these are the beliefs that they they perpetuate um, within and without themselves. These these things never change. It's I think I make the joke in the book. You know, if Donald Trump cured AIDS and cancer in the yeah. same day, the BBC would be slagging him off. Yeah, yeah they they never change. The, and the reason they don't change, Richard, is because these are the these these are the manifestations of a, a sort of the rich and powerful. Um, these are the objectives of a very rich and powerful elite. And they're not going to change. I mean, you know, for example, Donald Trump challenges everything, the, the, you know, in, in American politics, the way it works. He's come along and he's completely ruffled the feathers of some very rich and powerful people. And they want him gone. The BBC, the mainstream media, are simply doing their task, which is to protect the interests of the rich and powerful, the globalists, the corporates, the elite, call them what you like. So if Donald Trump does anything good, you'll never hear about him. Because the BBC's objective, the purpose of the BBC is to represent what Chomsky and Herman call the elite consensus. Mm. And I think people are beginning to realise that the BBC do not represent people, never have represented people, just as the political elite do not represent people. What they represent is a very small minority of rich and powerful interests. And that's why those narratives, I call them narratives, they call them narratives themselves, actually, the BBC, the media call them narratives. They never, ever will change. You know, they want Assad gone. You know, the rich and powerful want the assets of Syria for themselves, just as they wanted with Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein. The warmongers in Washington and London will never change because it's about their own personal power and wealth, consolidation and expansion of that power. The BBC are simply persuading the population that the int- that the interests of the rich elite are the interests of themselves, the, the the poor and the dispossessed. That's what the BBC's job is to do. And I think once people realise that that's what the BBC do, oh, and they also happen to produce a Strictly Come Dancing programme, just to draw us all in a little bit there. So we we're all confused and match of the day highlights. Yeah. See if they can do that, they've got us where they want us. Yeah, it's and- lo- well, that's classic love bombing in in yeah. in. in um in an abusive relationship it's it's give you what you want and then switch and bait and and you said at the start before we started recording that you you worked at university and you wouldn't have been able to write this book if you were still working in that environment because you you get in trouble i mean that was really interesting to me i think it would be it would be difficult because somehow i would be known as someone who's going against the the consensus because to criticise the BBC is to criticise the establishment, and to criticise the establishment is actually attacking those rich and powerful interests that we're talking about here. Yeah. So, and it's so deeply ingrained this this groupthink 
uh, is so deeply ingrained now within most of our systems. Look at the National Union of Teachers, university lecturers, go to any secondary school now, listen mm -hmm. to those teachers. They, they sound like ideologues, political ideologues. My university colleagues are pretty much the same, although I suspect it's a bit like 1984 when Winston Smith thinks he's the only wrong thinker in the world. Then he notices Julia, and she's also a wrong thinker. And it's very likely that a lot of people are wrong thinkers in private. But when they go into the public domain, the university lecture theatre, the local council office that they, under the BBC even, let's say, broadcasting house, that they have to then put on this other face, which is the politically correct right-thinking face. Yeah. So that's a difficult situation because it takes a very brave person to stand up and say, you know, to become whose private persona, you take that into the public arena. That's a very brave person. I mean, I think, I think you know, we talk about Tommy Robinson. I think he's done that. Look what happened to him. Um, Donald Trump does it every day. Look what happens to him. I mean, these, these are very powerful. Uh, these are very powerful enemies to, to have um, against you. And if I happened to cross the line and I, I'm seeing to be potentially, you could argue, well, look, that's one attacking the BBC. The BBC, they are the, the champions of the elite and the powerful. Keep an eye on that guy. Because, you know, if he's got these kind of thoughts in his head, these wrong, these wrong thoughts, we might just have to keep an eye on this guy. You know, I mean, I, I'm not saying I would have got sacked from my job, but I, I reckon that probably my colleagues would have thought, hmm, he's written, he's written, a, in that book, he's written a couple of things saying, look, uh, examining how people attack Donald Trump. Is he mad? Mm. He's actually analysed and given evidence here, back to the evidence, about how the media portray and try to trick people into believing things that are untrue. Is he, is he crazy? We've got to keep our eye on that guy, Sedgwick. You know, he's, he could be a wrong thinker. Well, I think we. Uh, well, if in that case, I've been a wrong thinker for a very long time, and I think most of us that get together are. But I, I agree with you there, and I think that's a very good um, point. Is that I think deep down, most people are wrong thinkers, and that's why they end up delving into drugs, alcohol, anything, because they're living a life that they know that they really don't want to live. They're having thoughts and th that that they don't want to have or they can't express. And they certainly can't tell. Yeah, can't tell everybody else. They are eating themselves alive. And alcohol is an escapism. Drugs are an escapism. Anything, food. This is the point. Is if you switch it around and go, look, this is what I believe. If we all did it, it'd be mm. fine. But it's the elephant yeah. in the room, isn't it? It's mm. that. Don't look at it. It's the emperor's new clothes. He's naked, but don't say anything. Don't say anything. The ones that say anything, you, you. It takes more people. To be that little boy to go he's yeah. naked he's naked then, don't forget that if you step out of line if you are one of those people that will articulate what majority opinion let's face it, majority opinion here um if you're one of those people that articulate that an organization like the bbc will absolutely hound you to death and they will smear you and they will try to finish your career in whatever field you are particularly if you're in the public eye i mean you look at katie hopkins She's got she's a very very opinionated person. Um, Jacob Rees Mogg. I mean, in my book, actually, I, I use that example of Jacob Rees Mogg. I think one of the most outrageous things about the BBC is the treatment of people like Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees Mogg, anyone in fact who is a vocal figurehead of Brexit. Just look what they've done. I mean, look at how they treat Jake, 
Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's an MP who's been actually accosted on his doorstep with his children mm. by hard left activists. And the BBC constantly portray him as a bigot. I mean, that's what they introduced him as news networks, a thoroughly modern bigot. He's against mixed marriage, homosexuality. He's not. He's a Catholic. He's just following his faith, which is Catholicism. And he's, a, and as far as I'm concerned, he's very welcome to do so. Mm. But the BBC hold him up as some kind of ancient bigot who's got to be opposed and ridiculed. And look what that, in real life, that has led to quite a lot of intimidation for Jacob Rees-Mogg. And who's leading the charge? The BBC. And that's because they disagree with his politics. He's a wrong thinker. And because he's a wrong thinker, the BBC attack him. So that's a national broadcaster that we all pay for, attacking and hoping to inflame. What they do, Richard, the really insidious thing about them is they try to inflame people. Um, they call it fermenting hate. If you're a Donald Trump supporter, you ferment hate. It's gaslighting, isn't it? They don't ferment hate. You know, the BBC don't ferment hate. They just put run hundreds of negative stories about Jacob Rees-Mogg. And in the mind of some of these hard leftists, momentum activists, then they turn up on Jacob Rees-Mogg's doorstep, harassing him. And the BBC is saying, oh, my God, Jacob Rees-Mogg's been harassed. Oh, dear, how did that happen? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> and he put all those hit pieces against Jacob, how they try and portray him yeah. as being a bigot. And they sit there and then just pretend innocence. I mean, quite incredible. In fact, I noticed on New Newsnight um, the other night, they would, I think it was Emily Maitlis was trying to say, well, how come Brexit has, has descended into a left v right political argument? And I thought, well, why? Because Newsnight and the BBC have tried for the last 20 years to pretend that Brexit is a left versus right debate when it isn't. It's actually elite against dispossessed. But you at the BBC have tried and there's actually research by Newswatch by David Keithley that shows that the amount of left-wing Brexit supporters or Eurosceptics have been hugely marginalised by the BBC. I think something like 0.4% of speakers in a 10-year period were left-wing supporting Eurosceptics. So the BBC have tried to make it out that this is a, a right-wing, Brexit is a, a right-wing phenomenon, and anyone who's left-wing opposes it. And they've done it consistently, and they've done it willfully, and they've done it presumably because they realised it was the only way that they were going to get 48% of this population to vote for the authoritarian Marxist EU. That was the only way they were going to do it, to make it into a left or right debate. And the BBC have done that. Yeah, and I think they're responsible for a lot of Labour voters in Labour constituencies who've actually, and, and Labour MPs who are EU supporters when the, the traditional Labour stance was to be Eurosceptic, Tony Benn, Barbara Castle, people like that. But the BBC have changed the way people have thought about that by presenting it deliberately as left versus right, the only way they'd get 48% of people to vote for it. I mean, there's so much with this Brexit thing that we could talk about. I mean, the, the biggest thing for me is that it's already been voted for and you were doing it again which to me is just crazy. What's the point? That 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 is just mental. That, that you can't be a democracy if you're given them an answer and you get a wrong answer. If there's a wrong answer in democracy, that's ridiculous. To me, that's it's quite clear that this left versus right is just a facade to divide and conquer when it really should be the people who are paying these wages and the, the, the get the decision to oppose to these people that go to Cambridge, go to Oxford, that never really worked the proper days work in their life that are middle class people that don't understand what it's like to try and find two pound fifty down the back of your sofa now 
that is the divide. There's the divide. Bridget, think about them. Think about, have a look at the coverage now from the BBC, because now they've got their way. Because remember, the BBC have been agitating for a second referendum since basically the 23rd of June 2016. Now look at it, now they've got their way. They're just rowing back a bit. It's like, oh my God, it looks like the MPs are going to... Um, they're going to stuff the voters. Oh, my God. And they're going to have a second referendum. Oh, my God. Is it really true? Can this be happening in our democracy? You know, the BBC, the ones who've been agitating every single day, 24-7 to break democracy, you know, to, to shatter our notion of democracy, agitating for this second referendum. They have wanted that second referendum so badly because they know it's going to be a stitch up and they know it's going to be a victory for a moment. And now they're sitting there saying, Oh my God! What are the ramifications? What are the ramifications of a second referendum? Can can we survive as a democracy from the people who've been actually agitating for twenty? You know, yeah. this is what I this is what really really annoys me about this this organisation. Now they're pretending all innocence. Oh my God! A second referendum? It's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah. You know, this is the organisation that've been banging the drum every single day for it. And now they're trying trying to pretend they're totally innocent about it all. You know. Anyway, that's 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 the BBC for. It. I think I think what they what they do is they are i mean you, you might call them sly and devious but it is quite sly and devious but but i don't think they care anymore because i think i think they've become they've become so arrogant in their assumptions and they know they're not going to be challenged and they, they know the royal charter they know every single government that comes into power is going to grant them a 10-year extension of that royal charter. that's going to go on indefinitely despite netflix despite this revolution in the digital age the BBC are going to cling on to this license fee for as long as they possibly can. And I think that might be their downfall in the end, because what it means is, you know, they get, what, five billion per year. Netflix are already eight, nine billion per year, you know, on did, and they've shown how digital, digital subscription is the way forward. Yeah. Now, I think the BBC are retarding themselves by not going with that, by clinging on to this old notion that you should force people to buy your service. I think in the end it's going to backfire because I don't think they're ready. I don't. I think Netflix and Amazon have got a massive jump ahead mm. of the BBC in yeah. the in this digital subscri subscription age. And I don't know if the BBC can ever catch up with that because they're so stuck in this license fee, compulsive license fee. I think Amazon and and, and uh, Netflix and companies are, are way ahead of them now. So I think that might backfire. Yeah. In the end, and that, that's another issue. I mean, I don't really go into much detail in the book about that, but the, the future of the BBC, I think, is, is up in the air at the moment. And I mean, we haven't spoken today so far about, look at that. I mean, you've got, what, about 850,000 people cancelling the television licence per year. What's the BBC response to that? We don't care. So what? We're not interested in ratings anymore. <laughs> we don't care if... Five million people watch our program, or five mil, or five thousand. Because the, the point is, Richard, they don't care whether the proles watch their content. Not really. What they're concerned is that those five thousand people are the movers and shakers. As long as they've got the MPs, the Metropolitan yeah. Bubble watching their political output, that's what really matters. Because they're the people who make the decisions. The proles, the twenty odd million, you know, up in the north of England. Yeah, if you want to watch our program, it's up to you. But actually, we don't care because we're still going to get five hundred thousand pounds salary per year because the government is going to ensure that. And we're just going to basically broadcast if they had to. They would simply broadcast the metropolitan bubble elite in London. They'd be quite happy because they're the people who make the decisions. And all the BBC are really concerned about is influencing the political forum, and they do it, and and they and they do it in a, in a very very insidious way, in my opinion. They they actually. I mean, you might think that the government run this country, but people like myself, we would argue that 
it's actually the media that runs this country. Yeah, I would totally and, agree with you. Hundred percent. I mean, you know, people were saying a few weeks ago about the Calais. You know, the the boats coming across from Calais, and there were these migrants jumping in boats and coming across. Now the Home Office and Sajid Javid and his and it were under a lot of pressure there because people of Great Britain were saying, look, you can't let people just come in dinghies and just roll up on the beach of Brighton or whatever. Um, but they, if they actually dared to turn those boats back the way probably most of us wanted to, who would be on their back? The BBC and the mainstream media. Yeah. So who's running the country? Is it, is it the Home Office or is it, or is it the Director General of the BBC and the Channel 4 board? Who's actually running this country? Yeah. I pointed this out a little while ago, and someone said I was wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, I'm sure I read somewhere that some they the Channel Four News received a grant or some money a while back from BBC. Is that yes. true? Yes, I believe I believe it does. Uh, and also, I think I think from that license fee, Channel Four has a portion, and also S4C, the the Welsh channel. I think that gets a small portion. But it's, it's government-funded, Channel 4 Plus adverts. So there's, there's government funding, there's funding from BBC license, and there's also uh, commercial funding as well from commercial activities plus, um, obviously, adverts. See, this is so, a yeah, good lesson for me, is because I pointed that out to someone with this whole Michael Jackson uh, leave, uh, leaving Neverland documentary. I was pointing out that that, that is not a completely funded by the, the adverts, that channel. That is BBC funded in some sort of way or licence fee funded. And I knew I was right, but I couldn't find the article, which makes sense because I'm not supposed to find the article. But I knew I was right. In that terms, what happened in that, that documentary, whether you agree whether he is a is he, he is guilty or not, a film like that would never been allowed to air 10 years ago because it, it is just a propaganda. It is a, a lynching. And it's mm. not a film. It's it's just two interviews that go on for four hours about how bad he is. There's mm. no evidence to this. He's at the ten year FBI trial, um, mm. trial CIA trial. It's going on, and they found nothing. That would never mm. have been allowed to broadcast ten years ago. Mm. Now it seems you can say whatever you want as long as it goes along with the narrative. Mm. It doesn't matter, and there yes. has to. There doesn't even have to be any evidence behind it anymore. Mm. It's a scary world. In, mm. in the media world, you mm. literally do not need to do your research anymore. You can just think, I'll oh, just say it. Everyone's got a YouTube channel, just say it. There's no mm. comeback if you're saying mm. the right thing. But then someone like Tommy Robinson says the wrong thing and he gets pulled out of the pub. Now, what sort of world mm. do we live in where that can happen? Well, I mean, I, I think I closed my book by quoting um, from 1984. As you know, I use it quite a lot in the book. And I think, I think my final chapter... I use a couple of quotes from 1984, and one of them um, is the image of, I think, one of the characters called O'Brien in, in 1984. He's, he's a real, we might call him like a BBC right thinker supreme. He's, he's a party member. He says, if you want to think about the future of humanity, imagine a, a boot stamping on a human face for all eternity, and that's the wrong thinker. And what O'Brien is saying there is we're going to find wrong, a wrong thinker. Winston Smith is a wrong thinker. The hero of the anti-hero of 1984, and what O'Brien says, he's he's part of the establishment, the machine of the establishment. He's a zealot, and that image I think is quite horrifying. And he says that's going to be the future for people like you, wrong thinkers. We're going to be this is going to be a boot stamping on a human face through all history, because we're always going to find you. We're going to vilify the wrong thinker like you, Winston, like Tommy Robinson, like. 
Trump, like Brexit supporters, and we're always going to squash you. You know, we're going to humiliate you. We're going to actually physically kill you because Winston Smith is killed at the end. He has a bullet in the head at the end of 1984. And that's, you think about it, we're actually, people say 1984 is prophetic. I mean, I'd argue that we've been there for several years. We've yeah. already been in 1984. And if, and if, if I mean, if Orwell is completely correct and there's no reason to think that he wasn't, that image of violence, political violence sanctioned by the state, which is what I would understand is called fascism, strangely enough, <laughs> authoritarianism is okay. As long as you have the right of it. This is the scariest thing I think is that, you know, these anti-fascists who call themselves anti-fascists, who behave like fascists, they don't have a problem with fascism per se. They actually quite like fascistic methods. It's just, you can use it against your opponents. That's fine. You know, these Antifa, people who call them, you know, BBC, BBC love Antifa. They love anyone who, if you write, put a badge on yourself and say, I'm anti-fascist, you'll be on the BBC tomorrow. They'll, they'll, yeah. They make you into a star. You know, and, but the, 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 iron, the irony is in the future, what I, what I worry about the future is that fascism is fine. You can have the law court, as it did with Tommy Robinson, stitch him up. If you're a wrong thinker, if the police come and batter you tomorrow or batter Nigel Farage or Katie Hopkins, that's fine. No problem at all. You know, we don't mind fascism at all, actually, mm -hmm. provided it's what Chomsky and Herman talk about worthy and unworthy victims. And the media decides Katie Hopkins is a worthy victim, uh, an unworthy victim, sorry. Nigel Farage is an unworthy victim. Tommy Robinson is. Wrong thinkers, yeah, we don't mind the truncheons. Fine, you know, the MSN, the media, if you, if, if the, the police turn up with truncheons and batter Katie Hopkins to death or Nigel Farage or, or Jacob Rees-Mogg, hey, no problem at all, that's okay. We don't mind a bit of fascism now and again. However, if you do those tactics on right thinkers, oh my God, the, the outrage, the police state. My God, what kind of world are we living in? Fury, outrage, widespread criticism. A right thinker has been arrested wrongfully by the police. That's terrible. A right thinker, terrible. A wrong thinker arrested by the police, crickets, no problem. Now, that's where we are at the moment. That is worrying, very worrying. It's really worrying and no one seems to see it. And I mean, I think it's because people like me and yourself have been doing this research for, I mean, I'm, I'm only 38 years old and I understand this and I've only been doing this research for that 10 years. But there's people that know far more than I will ever know along these lines and I'm learning so much from people like yourself from the David Ikes of the world from there's a guy called Neil Sanders who I look up to very much who writes a book about mind control um I spoke to a guy called Jay Dyer a couple of days ago about Hollywood and how it puts, puts it works in there as well and I spoke to another guy called Mark Devlin he talks about the music industry these soft cult ways of thinking have been we've been attacked from everywhere and now we're right in the middle and we don't even know it we, we we don't have a clue unless it's like whack-a-mole you don't know you're down the hole until you pop your head out and and, and it takes well, people like Richard, I think the only hope is that more and more people are expressing themselves um, and people like Tommy Robinson or Katie Hopkins whether you agree or disagree with them they are articulating an opinion there and the support the support they have is is clear to me to see now the next stage for the authoritarian and for the BBC is censorship. And that's mm. the next stage. And you can see that's where it's leading to at the moment. The BBC and the allies in the mainstream media are terrified. 
They're terrified of social media. They are absolutely terrified. You can see the BBC digging at Facebook all the time. They, they understand that Facebook is a real threat because what they don't want, Richard, they don't want us to be able to you know, go on our keyboard, find a few facts, and then share it with people. They don't want that. That is the biggest threat to the BBC monopoly, or let's call it the mainstream media monopoly ever. Uh, and they are terrified of that. And so the next stage, and look at the New Zealand mosque shooting yeah. already, that has set off the usual authoritarian saying, right, that's it, we've got to censor social media because you know, if, if you don't hear from the people on social media, then that won't happen. It's ridiculous. It's it's uh, it's casuistry, it's sophistry, it's all sorts of things. Um, but that's the next stage. So the next stage is to move into the big brother world and to be fully immersed into 1984 is to have that kind of censorship. Because at the moment, although freedoms are being eroded, we still have some freedoms. Yeah. Although where we are in freedom of speech is anyone's guess at this moment in time. I don't think even the authorities understand where they are. But that's the next step to become a fully functioning Oceania, as per Orwell's 1984, is for the BBC to get their way and for us not to be able to use the internet freely. And we can already see Twitter and Facebook, Facebook banned Tommy Robinson um, after he did the panadrama thing. Um, he's got one medium now, which I think is YouTube, and I think YouTube are just waiting for any excuse now to erase him. Mm. I think it was Alex Jones from InfoWars. Yeah. Um, Alex Jones is virtually invisible now. He's got a website, yeah. Infowars, um, and sometimes people put up clips. Well, you can't go to YouTube as you used to be able to and watch his three-hour broadcast from Austin, Texas, or wherever he, he was. Yeah. It's a very successful strategy, and it works. I mean, they could erase Tommy Robinson. Yeah, and David Icke will be next as well. Um, and I, I and you just pointed out something there. I, I wondered why they let me on the BBC, and you just pointed out there that I've gone on there and talked about. Which is true, the, this, these mental health effects for young people who use it too much, the suicide rates, and that is very true. But I always I thought, well, why they let me on here? Because I blatantly don't agree with some of their policies on the BBC and the way they go about things. I've been very open about that. And, and that makes sense. They, I was kind of pointing out the wrongs of social media, although I was trying to do it in a way that was actually aimed at young people. I mean, you're talking 7 to 15, 16-year-olds, mental health. But I kind of was backing up their agenda of censoring social media somehow. Yes, yes um, they're trying to tread quite carefully um, at the moment because where do you draw those lines? I mean, my God, I mean, it's, it's a can of worms, isn't it? It's, it's like we say, it's like you either have free speech or you don't. I mean, because yeah. once you start censoring it, those lines get ever further and further away from free speech. So. It's it's the most vicious kind of circle you could ever imagine. Once you once you go down, once you decide we're going to censor certain things, where, where does that take you to? And the BBC are being very careful. They're trying to blame. <laughs> they're doing the usual thing. They're trying to blame. Other, they're trying to pressure other people to do their own. They're basically trying to pressure politicians. If they can put enough pressure on politicians, hopefully those politicians will censor and limit severely Facebook, Twitter, and hopefully then people will start turning back to the BBC. Because the, the BBC, let's face it, they are virtually irrelevant in, in, in my country. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say that. Well, I'm not happy to say it because in, in some ways, Richard, I regret what's happened to the BBC because I was brought up with the BBC and I remember some great stuff, yeah. some, some of the best ever drama and television ever. Yeah. Don't they seem further and further away to me? Um, yeah. I was talking to someone the other day about BBC comedy. And we were just lamenting 
the fact that it's now dead. I mean, BBC comedy has... They've even had to re- revive Alan Partridge, for God's sake. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the a desperate broadcast. <laughs> you have to revive a character that was relevant 20 years ago. Yeah. That shows what, what a state it's in. Yeah. And I, I wrote that book not without some regret, because what a shame that it's got such a unique position and it should be trusted, but that trust has eroded and I think it's eroded to a point now they can never get that back. They, they, they've admitted them. Some of them will admit it occasionally. Um, they, they understand what's happening, but no one's big enough to actually step in and do something because obviously the government couldn't step in because the BBC would scream, oh, look, the government, government are censoring us, you know, yeah. um, even though they are effectively the, one and the same thing. They would, they would kick up a almighty fuss the, the moment the government stepped in. Look at the authoritarian government trying to... Tell us what to do, an independent, independent broadcaster, government, oh my God. So the government are absolutely, the government can't do anything, even if they wanted to, and I don't think they want to, because I think they understand that the BBC is an extension of government, and it was formed in the 1920s from those six or so companies with the express intention of using the medium of mass communication for governmental purposes. The government realised prophetically back there in the 20s, the, the 20th century was going to be the, the, the century of mass communication. And any government would want a tool that could, you know, communicate with the masses. And that's why the BBC was born. They, they were looking ahead. And quite rightly, they understood that propaganda was going to be an essential component of government control. They understood that very, very well. That idea that the BBC are independent, well, I don't know what you call independent, but let's put it this way. The, the, the government and the BBC communicate on a daily basis. So I don't know how independent, I mean, the independent, that's just ridiculous. And I think what will happen one day is the government will be forced, as happened in Sweden, um, their state broadcaster, they got rid of the voluntary subscription, but then it's direct taxation. So the government effectively just directs that money straight to the broadcaster. Mm. But then again, that independence mask then must fall forever because then it's effectively the Stasi or something. It's, it's effectively government propaganda. So the BBC are desperate not to go down that road, but I think ultimately that's where it must end. I mean, if I was the, the BBC, I would be clever and I would say, let's have a look what we've got. We've got some great stuff. We've got a great archive. If you want to subscribe, let's split the BBC up. And I think that's what a lot of people like me would like to see. We'd like to see it split up. So BBC News and Current Affairs, if you want propaganda, fine, you can subscribe to that element. Yeah. Or let's have the BBC Archive separate. Then we can. I would subscribe to the BBC Archive myself. I don't have a television license. I don't watch BBC. But I would subscribe to a BBC Archive just to access all that classic drama. Mm. I might even subscribe to a BBC Geography and History natural, natural channel. I might even subscribe to that for the Blue Planet and stuff like that. But what I don't want, I don't want that political um, and um, cultural viewpoint from the BBC. I don't want that, although it has actually got found its way into lots of drama these days. And I don't know if yeah. I don't know if the Blue Planet, but I'm sure the Blue Planet will be pushing certain agendas. So you can't really get away from their agendas. I mean, where you get the plastic in the oceans and the plastic, okay. That sort of thing, climate change. I believe that even BBC documentaries, you know, there's always something about climate change. They'll always be pushing something. Mm. So maybe I wouldn't. Subs- I think the only thing I would subscribe to, Rich, would be the the archive because I know that's pre-BBC politicisation. You know, anything maybe before the 1980s, I'd be quite happy to watch because I don't think the agenda was so strident before then. But I'm guessing because you might be. I don't watch the. I, I don't watch the BBC. I'm no, I don't. Absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with that organization. I won't even, if someone switches on the radio four in the car, I'll say switch it off immediately. 
I don't want that um, um, contamination, <laughs> let's call it contamination of my mind. But I, from what I gather, um, I, I read a tweet the other day where someone said, hey, do you mind, could you, this was dear BBC, could you just produce a Doctor Who program not full of political crap and just a science, science fiction program, please? That was to do with the Doctor Who, the latest Doctor Who serial. Well, I think I put that quote in my book, actually, because I thought that just about sums it up. Doctor Who, you've even done something with Doctor Who. I keep hearing people saying you've screwed Doctor Who up. You've even screwed Doctor Who up. You know, when I was a kid, Tom Baker with his long scarf, you know, they were just doing things with Cybermen. And it wasn't really alleg allegorical or symbolic. It was just basically good old-fashioned sci-fi where Tom, Tom Baker would be, you know, killing those Cybermen with the tinfoil costumes and stuff they used to wear and those square head things. And that was all it was. Unless I missed something as a child, I don't know. But the messages weren't there then. They weren't written politically, whereas nowadays, I think a BBC writer, like you were saying, if you want to write for the BBC, these days you've got to pass a blooming political test, I guess. You know, yeah, what you are you pointing? You Can you really promise did. to write about LGBT, please, in the first episode of Doctor Who? If not, sorry, you're out. This guy's promised to write about an LGBT Doctor Who android. Will you do the same? Sorry, we don't want you. I mean... What the, and they don't even see it. I think the, the tragedy is that they don't see that they're destroying this brand. Mm, yeah. And I think the tragedy, they're destroying a brand that should be above all that. It shouldn't be part, it shouldn't be driving it. It should be, it should be looking critically at how politics as it ha has become integral to our culture and advert. It shouldn't be part of it. It should be above it. And yet it isn't. It's it's a it's it's like a cross between CNN, New York Times, The Guardian. It's it's gone. And but how do you how do you actually get it back? And the only way I could think of is that you would simply go in there and rip the BBC of twenty thousand people and start again. Rip it up. Start again. How the heck would you even do that? But well, I think so, the same thing needs to happen with Parliament. I think you've got to rip it up and start again. Um, I mean, this has been incredible. We can go on for for ages. The one thing that you would like people to understand from from the work that you're doing really take away from from the book and understand what's happening to them and why yeah one thing you'd like them to understand yeah um yeah and, and actually i've had quite a few emails well i've had quite a lot of emails actually from people saying you've kind of articulated what i've been thinking um my suspicions things i've been thinking for many years reading your book confirmed that um, and also had people say, wow, I, I never realized, but now I've read your book and I can actually, because what I've done in the book, I use quite a lot of examples. I thought it was very important. So one or two people said to me, oh, too many examples, too many examples. You've just repeated yourself, which is fair criticism. But I, I wanted to put lots of examples in because I wanted to show how pervasive it is. I mean, I could have written 10 books, uh, actually, Richard. I've got enough material there. Um, and it was just a case of selecting uh, and editing the book in such a way that it wasn't a thousand pages long. You know, and, and I wanted to put loads of examples. And if someone said to me, why have you got so many examples? And you repeated yourself, Trump, Trump, Trump. But I said, but the reason I've done that is because if you look at the BBC, it's all Trump, Trump, Trump. You know, there's yeah. method in the madness. The reason is because that they've made that into an issue. And I wanted to put all those examples to show how they manipulate people and just how pervasive it is. And, and that's the way the book formed itself. And people majority of people the feedback I've had has been very positive and people said those those examples are really useful because you know I would read things and see things on the BBC and I would notice those things now I'm starting to notice things and because you pointed them out 
which I feel very humble about. I'm, I'm very, very happy to have done that. Um, I'm looking at it differently. People said to me, I'm looking at it differently. I'm, I'm seeing things I never saw before. And I think that's all, all I need. That, that's, in fact, I'm, I'm considering writing a follow-up to it simply because I've been overwhelmed by people saying, for the first time ever, I'm looking at this with totally different eyes. I'm looking at it more critically. I'm not just sitting there accepting what I see in here. And I think that's what the BBC wants us to do, sit here and just accept everything they say. Um, so I've done a little bit. So I feel like I've, you know, I mean, this, listen, the BBC is a monster. It's a behemoth. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Kraken wakes. It's like, a, it's like a monstrosity. It's not going to be slayed by just me, but it has to be brought down somehow. It has to be challenged and it has to be it has to have its ego tamed it has to be have, have its arms and legs chopped off so it, it has to be contained somehow and i think people like myself and other people um robin aiken wrote a book as well recently um, called the noble liar about the bbc i think okay. the more of us it has to be a concerted effort by people like me and anyone else to just keep that pressure up uh, i think that's the only way we're ever going to get i'd like it to change but i, I don't I, i'm very pessimistic about it changing i don't think it can change i think it's it's a political pressure group now that's what it has become and it also just happens to produce don't forget what it what it does is it, it is very careful to produce things like grand national wimbledon as long as it's doing that royal weddings as long as it's doing that it maintains this pivotal position in the public consciousness um, so it's very crafty. It's very, you know, what we're, what we're up against here, Richard, I consider this to be a fight <laughs> in a way. But we're up against a very devious enemy. Mm. I mean, it's hugely devious. You know, the meetings that go on between those people there, the strategies they develop, you know, um, which are all the objective of which is how can we get this beast? How can our beast grow? How can we grow the beast even bigger and bigger and bigger? How can we exert more power and control? How can we enrich ourselves more? How can we disenfranchise the working class and proles even further? How can we marginalize them more? That's what they're talking about there. That's the deviousness behind this broadcast. And they sit there paying themselves huge salaries at the same time, <laughs> which we, not myself, but the majority of people in the UK are actually paying them to do that. You couldn't write a book about it, actually. You could, if you wrote a fiction book about that, I, I, I think people would just think that is just ridiculous. Well, they, they, <laughs> yeah, they if you're do. disenfranchising a population, they're paying yeah. you to criticise them, to disenfranchise them. Yeah. <laughs> what a ridiculous notion. Who, who would fall for that? Well, we do. We slowly, slowly did. Well, we did. And that happened. I mean, this book um, I've got here... And this book is, it's got back, I think it's the right way around. It looks backwards on my screen, but I think it's the right way around. Yeah. Um, this book is, I believe this book should be in every university, in every, in any media course should have to read this book, should be part of it. And I'm not just saying that to be kind. It's, it's something that people need to read when they leave uni and go into the media industry, that this is what you are up against. This sort of behaviour, not just the BBC, whatever institution you go in, be aware that you are not going into a creative environment and you will have your heart broken just it's a very very important book to read because it will save you a lot of heartbreak and time and the skills that you really need is the ability to investigate to question everything for a long time stand up for what you believe in and when you're wrong admit it read it again and remember you are not your opinions you are 
not attached to your knowledge. Your knowledge can change, but your intentions are always what is going to get you through. And this book will point out the intentions of big corporates are not good. And I think it should be part of every perspective that's working, um, that has a media course. It should should be. Yeah. I'm really pleased you're doing a second one as well. Uh, thank you for your time, David. It's been incredible. Yeah. And I'd love to work yeah. with you on some documentary work because, yeah. um, and do this, do this again would be amazing. Um, yeah, it's been brilliant. I'm, I'm and, always ready to talk. And reading that book for me was like, thank God someone understands it. I'll read the Robin Aiken one as well because it's important. It's, it's really important to people going in the media, uh, um, industry, whatever whatever radio film tv documentary which is my background and what you said really earlier was really nice of you to say that people like us like myself are the journalists we yeah, are it's and, and it's really really kind of thing for you to say but i think so many other people out there who are doing what i'm doing are the journalists the ones that actually delve into these things properly take their ego aside and go okay i just want to make this world a little bit better I want the truth to come out and not my truth, a truth. It's mm. not my truth. I'll be dead one day. Mm. I want to leave this world in a better place than when I came into it. It's essential. I mean, it, it's essential. I mean, as, as we, we've spoken before, journalism, journalists or what we were, used to be, have abdicated. They, they've abdicated their, their profession. You know, I think in the book, I, I compare what a journalist should do to what an activist does. And the gulf is huge. You know, there's there's a huge gulf later in the book there. I, I think I put, compare what I consider to be activism against journalism in a simplistic way. I mean, you could write a lot about it, but people like yourself, we need people like yourself. We, we need people out there. I mean, even the Tommy Robinson is, is a journalist. Tommy Robinson is, in fact, more of a journalist than any BBC activist. Yeah. Whether you agree or disagree with what he does, he's trying to pursue a truth. He's trying to get to the heart of the matter. And he's not just saying, okay, this is the official line. I'm going to spin you the official line that, that the agency or the powerful government, whoever it is, the establishment have told me to spin. Here it is. That's not journalism. That's, that's, not, that's the opposite of journalism. So you could argue that people like Katie Hopkins and Tommy Robinson are going out there pursuing the truth. And it seems to me, therefore, is that why they are hated so much? You know, it's easy to reach that conclusion. Why do people hate those, why do people, hate those people so much? I've got an open mind on it, and, and hopefully you have too. And I think we look at it and think, yeah, okay, you might not like them, but guess what? These people are trying to sort of dig, dig. They're digging. They're doing what journalists used to do years ago. And there's quite a lot of independent in America. There's lots in America. Crowd, people, Stephen Crowder, people like that. Loads of those guys out there in America are doing great stuff. Um, Ezra Levant from the Rebel Media has been in Cambridge in the last few days, hasn't he? Reporting, uh, trying to report on the on the Robinson thing, where the MSM have been absent. So it's absolutely vital that people like yourself exist. And I'm, I'm glad that there's people like you. And there's going to be there's always going to be people like me. I think there's more and more people like me coming through who are trying to change the narrative a, a little bit. But I think everything helps. We're against a huge, huge, powerful like Chomsky. If you read one book, I would um, recommend for yourself and anyone listening to this is Manufacturing Consent yeah. by Chomsky and Herman. It's an amazing text. And Chomsky and Herman there take apart the mainstream media and they basically show what it is and what it's supposed to do. And you'll, you'll be shocked. Anyone who's, who's ever switched on television will be shocked when they realise that Chomsky and Herman, basically, to summarise what they say, mainstream media is effectively a tool of the rich and powerful, as indeed is the judiciary system, the education system. They are effectively ideological tools which are used 
by the rich and powerful. And as we're seeing with Brexit, Parliament is one of those tools as well. And when you start to realise that, the world looks different and will always look different. Well, where can people find your work, David? Well, I, I write for um, a website called Comment Central. Um, I write for that quite. I've done quite a few articles for Comment Central. Um, but I also write a lot of motor racing stuff. So that's not really... I don't want to be known for writing motor racing. Right, OK. Um, so I contain my cultural and social commentary to Comment Central. Okay, cool. That's interesting. And you've got a website, haven't you? Oh, yes, there's a website. Yeah, I've got a blog on my website, davidsedgwick.co.uk. I've got a couple of projects coming. One of them may or may not be another expose of the BBC. I'm wondering whether I'm going to either write something specifically about the BBC or whether I'm going to broaden it out to be about mainstream media in general. Yeah, I think I it would be to... great to have something that, that, that would be about trying to be a proper journalist now. We need that out well, there because what the hell do you do? It's a dying art. Yeah. I mean, Richard, I, I don't know what they teach them at journalism. I mean, you can do journalism degrees and you, you have to ask yourself, are they just going, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've worked at university, but I've never taught on any journalism courses. Mm. I'm, I'm wondering myself what my colleagues, how, how they do those courses must be bizarre. They must be teaching the principles, but at the same time saying, you don't worry about them. We'll take you through the motions of the yeah. principles of journalism. But there's a, there's a caveat here, guys, and that is you won't need any of this stuff. <laughs> if, you go, if you go work for the BBC or Channel 4, don't worry. You don't need to know anything about how to conduct proper journalistic um, practice because all you need is the right politics. I mean, if you're voting Labour Liberal and you're you know, an EU fanatic. Don't worry about any of that stuff, guys. Then the BBC Channel will give you a six-figure salary. So rip up the journalism course um, and join the Labour Party. And then you'll get a job at the BBC. I don't know. I mean, God, I don't know. It's crazy. But uh, anyway, keep up the good work yourself. I mean, I think the more people like you, the better. But beware, because they're coming for you. And I know they are. I know they are, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm happy. I've got enough. Thank I can pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, David, for your time. And I'd love to speak to no, you again soon. Thanks. Let's keep the conversation going. I will get this up over yeah. the next couple of days. So, guys, look out for um, BBC Brainwashing Britain, David Sedgwick. It's one of the best books I've seen on journalism and the way it actually works. And if you are looking to do a media course, this book is an essential for you. Um, yeah. Thank you, David. And I'll speak to you soon. You take care of yourself. Yeah. Bye-bye. Yeah. Cheers, mate. Bye.